Well, this time I'd like to invite up Dr. Janine Brown. She is our guest speaker this morning. Uh, I'm excited for this. I don't want to embarrass her, but she was one of my favorite professors at seminary. I always enjoyed when I had classes with her. Um, she has written many books, including uh, Scripture as Communication, which I know I've recommended to several of you. There's a new edition coming out soon, just FYI. Uh, she's on the NIV Translation Committee, and the biggest impact for me, she's just a great teacher, and that's why I'm excited to have her share with you this morning. Uh, I did SEM PM, so I'd go to four hours of class after a full day of work, uh, and that eight o'clock class, that last two-hour chunk sometimes was just, you're just trying to stay awake, okay? And when, when it was with Janine, though, we, it was always exciting. Uh, she, she brought great energy uh, and just a great perspective. So I'm excited to have her share with you this morning. I'll share one quick story. Uh, I don't know if she probably doesn't remember this, um, and, and you guys probably don't know this, but early in my seminary time, when I was wrestling with, do I want to pursue a, uh, a ministry in the church or ministry uh, teaching uh, at college or seminary, uh, I was really torn at the time, and uh, just as today demonstrates, she was always available to the students, and so I asked if I could come talk with her for a few minutes. I laid out the dilemma, and she said, well, as somebody who does teach, uh, I'll tell you, I got an MDiv, uh, which is the degree for preaching and, and church ministry, and she said, I just, I've never regretted it. Turns out that a lot of what you do as a professor is pastoral care anyway. She said, so my advice to you would be, I'd get the MDiv. I don't think you'll regret it. Uh, as it turns out, uh, well, that did, by the way, kind of settle it for me. It was just what I needed to hear, and that set me on the track to where I am today. So I'm grateful to her for that as well. So uh, with no more, uh, Janine Brown, thank you for sharing with us this morning. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. You don't need to clap. That's, nobody ever does that in class, so I just I never expect that. The 8 to 10 slot uh, was an awful slot to have to teach because we knew that these people had been work all day, 5.30 to 7.30, yeah, they'd be with us, and 8 to 10, it was just pretty sure they'd be snoozing in the back, but Jay never did that. I'm so glad to be with you today and to be talking about Philippians. Oh, I don't even want to say the year, but I will. So 40 years ago, I got my first commentary on any book of the Bible, and it was on Philippians, and it is right here in my hand, Ralph Martin's Tyndale series Philippians commentary. That summer, uh, I had finished my first year of college, and I'd gotten involved with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, had great training opportunities, so I went to a small group leaders training camp in May of that year, and they gave us this commentary, and they gave us a manuscript of Philippians, which just means somebody had typed it out and you had room to write on it. And we did a manuscript study, walked through carefully that book, that letter of Paul. I fell in love with it and I co-led a Bible study the next year on Philippians. That was sort of the goal of this camp. And um, I was struck by the Paul of Philippians. Um, he was so warm and relational. And I think in my early years, I got this idea that Paul was a bit cranky or, or a bit too aloof, off doing theology, Romans, right? A little cranky or exasperated Galatians, um, kind of coming down heavy-handed with his authority, 1 Corinthians. Now, you could say all of those are a little bit of misreadings of those books, but I had intuited something about Paul. And when I read Philippians, 
I was just struck by how relational he was, and that had not been my experience of Paul. So I want to invite you into this letter today. I know we don't have all morning two hours of 7 p.m. or three hours of a typical seminary class, but I want us in the next maybe half an hour or so to explore this book from beginning to end. Now, I was on a plane recently, and goodness, I haven't been on a plane for a long time, but um, I went to Houston for NIV translation team um, meetings, and uh, we're not gonna do just a 30,000 feet look, because we need to get into the text a bit. So I like to think of it more like we're gonna do a helicopter look at Philippians. So we'll start high, but then we'll dip down and we'll see various parts quite closely. So that's my goal, and I do have a goal of getting done about 10.45. So you hold me to that and I'll work on it. Um, that warm relational tone is something we're gonna see all the way through the letter. Uh, and in Philippians 1, we hear it right away after he greets the Philippians, uh, he prays for them. He expresses his prayer to them. He says this in verse three of chapter one. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Hear that all refrain? I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That confidence in what God is doing undergirds his joy in the Philippians and in their faith. And he says this in verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you, all of you, since I have you in my heart. That little Greek phrase can also be translated, you have me in your heart. There's a little bit of ambiguity there. It's all about word order, and, and that's not sort of decisive here. So I like to think that Paul, after writing that little line, I have you in my heart, looked back and thought, oh, also could mean you have me in your heart, and he didn't worry about correcting it because it was beautiful either way. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I was sold. I'm like, this is a warm and deep relationship. It's what the church should be at its best. And so I think as a church, as we think through Philippians, these words should inspire us for that kind of deep affection for one another that's growing. It's always growing. I don't think Paul, as we'll see later on, thought that there were no problems in the Philippian church or there weren't some places that needed work or people that needed to reconcile, chapter four, verses two and three. But... Under it all, the love of Christ and partnership with one another. Paul here uses a couple times in these verses a word that has come to mean something for us in church context often, koinonia, kind of a fellowship or a sharing, or I like the language of participation, because it's what we already experience in Christ. We participate in what Christ has done, who he is. We are in Christ. It's our location. It's our new address. And because we are there in Christ, then everyone else who is in Christ becomes this partner in the gospel, partner in faith, partner in love. So that partnership or sharing language that comes in um, verse seven and also verse five uh, kind of cements or glues this community together. 
The community isn't glued together because they all agree at every turn, that they all think the same way. We'll see that in chapter three and in chapter four. But the glue is Jesus, because Jesus has all of us in his hand, in his grasp, in his hold. We all are in it together, whether we like it or not. There's this sense that that's the glue that holds us, and I think that's a powerful concept when we're not getting along with someone in the church body or someone within our own family. The glue that holds us together is bigger than us because it's Christ. Christ holds us, therefore we are all held together. Paul concludes this section, Thanksgiving and prayer, with a prayer, and he prays that these believers will grow in love with knowledge, so they can discern, so they can be holy, so in that final day, God will say, yes, it's all good. Salvation has come. And he starts the list of things he wants for them with love, and I don't think that's an accident. Knowledge is important, discernment is great, but love starts it all off, verse nine. Again, the warmth of the letter strikes me. And then, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, sort of the lead into the, the body of the letter, the, the start of the exhortations that we'll see in verse 27, Paul does something he doesn't do in all of his letters. Sometimes we think of Paul writing letters and he starts with theology and then moves to practice. In this letter, he starts with assurance, what one commentator has called consolation. He wants to assure these dear believers in Christ who are concerned about him, so concerned they've sent a guy with the longest name ever, Epaphroditus, 2 verse 25. They've sent Epaphroditus to Paul in prison up in Rome. I know it's up and kind of over in Rome, there in Philippi, in Greece. And he has sent, they have sent Epaphroditus to stand in for them, to bring a gift of money, other kinds of gifts potentially, and then just to stick around. As if to say, Paul, we can't all travel to Rome to be with you in prison, but Epaphroditus can, so we're gonna, we're gonna send him in our place. Now, something's gone wrong, we'll see in chapter two, with Epaphroditus, he got sick. It's not a bad thing, but he got sick. Um, so uh, he had to head on back. But the point is that they're concerned about him in prison. In prison in the Roman world is not a piece of cake. He's probably in military custody, chained to one or two officers by the wrist, maybe the ankle, and um, he, he, they're not great conditions. So he needs people to bring him food and, and funds and whatever else he might need. He wants, though, in 1, 12 through 26, this first kind of autobiographical section, to assure them that one, the gospel is all right, and two, he is all right. And quite frankly, for Paul, if the gospel's all right, he is all right. <laughs> That's the way he thinks. So in 12 through, 20, or 12 through 18, we hear, now I want you to know the gospel has gone forth even with me in prison. The whole Praetorian Guard, the whole Imperial Guard in Rome is hearing about the gospel. Because you know if Paul's chained to somebody, he's not keeping quiet, right? But not only that, there are other believers in Rome who, because of Paul's imprisonment, verse 13 and 14, 14 are invigorated to preach Christ, to tell the story of Christ's life, death, and resurrection um, for the salvation of, the, of all people who will receive him. That gospel is going forward through these believers. Now Paul then um, divides them into two groups in a sense and says, some do it out of love for me and, and right motives. Others, 
out of bad motives, selfish motivation. We're not exactly sure why and how, but they seem to think that somehow not Paul is kind of on ice, they can get going or something like that, or there might be some other kind of divisiveness they have in mind, but Paul doesn't care. One, verse 17, um, or 18, but what does it matter? Whatever the motive, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. That's kind of amazing. I don't care their motives. Do you ever look at another Christian and go, I don't think their motive is that good. You know, I get a little high and mighty at those moments. At least I do. Paul's like, if the gospel goes forward, if Christ is proclaimed, don't you worry about motives. That's kind of a God thing to worry about motives. I just find that quite amazing. He's like, the gospel's going forward. It doesn't matter if it's, again, good motive or bad. He's happy. The gospel is all right. He also then affirms... 18 through 26, that he's all right. Don't worry about me. And he starts to deliberate about his imprisonment. Will he live or will he die? Now, he's in prison, and he's going to go to trial. That's the, kind of the outcome of his imprisonment. He's waiting for trial, and he doesn't know if Rome is going to exonerate him or Rome is going to um, uh, kill him. Capital punishment. Um, those are the two options that seem to be out in front of him. He says, that's okay. Don't worry about me because, and this is kind of my summary of verses 21 through 22, I can't lose. Either option is not a bad one for me. This is so odd for me, at least, thinking I kind of like my life and living. It's, not a, it's a good thing. You know, yes, I know God in the end will resurrect believers and we'll have an amazing experience in, with God forever, but I kind of like the now. Paul, of course, his now was in prison, so we can compare that with mine maybe. But he says... In verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live means going on in fruitful service with the Philippians. And as he deliberates back and forth, it's not his choice really, but he's deliberating so they can see out loud why neither is a bad move. God can, uh, either can happen, it'll be in God's care, he will be all right. But as he is torn between the two, he desires to be with Christ, but he knows they need him, and he becomes sort of convinced at the end of this dialogue that he will go back to them and, rest- and encourage them and help them in the faith. And that's where um, that section ends. So already in chapter one, we have this amazing warm prayer, assurances, if you're worried about me, it's okay, the gospel's going forward, I'm going to be all right, whatever happens to me, but I do think I'm gonna come back to you, and he affirms that later in chapter two. And it's only then we get to 127, which is sort of the start of what uh, the scholar called the body of the letter, the main part of the letter. And it doesn't start, again, with theology. It starts right away with exhortation. Paul begins to preach. He tells them how they ought to live. And he tells them the first command, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is an interesting command. Some translations catch um, in the translation a bit. It's tricky to catch in the translation that this is an unusual verb for Paul. It's not his usual kind of walk or live language. Both of those are options for him. He uses a language called, the term is polituomai. We hear the word politics in it. Polituomai. 
Only time Paul uses this verb in all of his letters. Later in chapter 320, we hear about our citizenship is in heaven. Palotuma. So th- this word kind of comes at two, and again, the only time Paul uses it in any of his letters. In Philippi, which was a Roman colony, that didn't mean all of his citizens had Roman citizenship, but as a colony, he was exempt from certain taxes, had a very high profile of Rome in Philippi, this Greek city. Maybe about 40% or so of the citizens were uh, Roman citizens, the residents. In that kind of context, it seems interesting or distinctive that Paul uses this language about um, the state or, I mean, it's language that evokes that kind of pictures a loyalty, but not to Rome, a loyalty to the gospel. The way in the, the, the commentary I'm currently writing on Philippians, that's the other part of the story, is I get to write the Tyndale um, second edition. So Martin won't go away, but Janine Brown will be over here in 2022 with that commentary. I'm very excited about that um, because of that sort of whole arc of the story. But um, the way I translated in my commentary is just a kind of a, a looser translation. Live in singular loyalty to the gospel of Christ. Not to the state, but to the gospel of Christ. Paul calls the Philippians to live their allegiance to Christ, to the gospel. That is where their focus ought to be. And that's a tricky thing to do in Roman Philippi. And yet he calls them to do that. And he immediately mentions how they need to hold together and do that. It will take unity to do that. Because he's not talking just to individuals. He's talking to the community of faith. And he, will, he says right away that they will be persecuted. Or they're already experiencing some persecution for that singular loyalty to Christ. In verse 29 or 28 he says, Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So we get a sense that they have, it takes some gospel grit to stand in that cultural context as a believer in Jesus alone. It was just fine for them to worship Christ, even if people didn't know who this deity was, but you can't let go of your other worship commitments, worship to Zeus or worship to other gods, and a worship, worshiping at the imperial cult or the imperial temples. Two temples in Philippi in this time period seem to be set up to worship the emperor, which is something that started with Julius Caesar and moved on through Augustus and all the way through the first century and beyond. People in the Roman Empire more and more had to also pay attention to worship of the Caesars who had, were departed, who had been deified. See, the Christians can't do that, right? Christians worship Christ alone. None of that other worship. Because it's okay to be polytheists in the ancient world and add Christ to the mix, but it's not okay to be monotheists. Jews were allowed to do so. They had some special exemptions. But as Christians became known less and less as Jews and more as a strange kind of group, then they were persecuted. So Paul starts out by encouraging them to stand firm in their singular allegiance to Jesus And then he turns in 2, 1 through 4 to talk about how they are to their posture toward one another. They are to um, have a, sing, uh, a, a shared mindset. We'll read what Paul says. It's much better than the way I say it. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. 
they need to move toward unity even further than they are. They're struggling with unity, we'll see that in chapter four. They need to be unified. In the midst of that cultural context, they need to stand as one person. Paul uses that language at the end of chapter one. And he tells them how to do it in verses three and four. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Humility is not about self-deprecation, oh, I'm bad and you're good. Humility is about facing outward and saying, I am going to take on your concerns and they will be mine too. And humility in the, in the Greco-Roman world, in the Roman world, in the Greek world, these were, that was not a virtue. Nobody thought humility was a virtue. It was a virtue in the Hebrew Bible, in the Jewish Bible, it's in the Old Testament. And it became a, a very strong Christian virtue as well, but it was not a, a virtue in any other part of the ancient world. You tried to, you really were interested in upward mobility, status, honor, and Paul turns all of that on his head. And the other New Testament writers do too. Humility is this turn to care more about the interests of others than one's own concerns and interests. And he then grounds it in the best example ever, verse five. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then we have this amazing, in my NIV it's set off as poetry. Poem, hymn, song to Christ saying what he did to exemplify humility, and we see in verse eight, he humbled himself. This one who was in very nature God did not count equality with God as something to be taken of advantage of. He did not grasp it, he did not take advantage of it. Not like in the Roman world, you take advantage of the next rung up the ladder and you take, take care to make sure your honor is preserved. Christ gives the example of none of that. Instead, Christ made himself nothing, verse seven, by taking the the very nature of a servant or a slave, doulos can be translated either way, and in the ancient world, of course, a slave was the lowest possible rung on society. So he moves from the highest place to the lowest place, and that becomes our example by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. If the one who was with God and was God, John 1, came, became human, and went to the the farthest ends to redeem humanity, as Paul says then, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, If Christ did that, you Philippians, Paul says, you can live humbly with one another. This is our, this is not just something we do incidentally, it's our DNA, we get it from Christ. We get it from being in Christ. We need to follow our master. Susan Eastman talks about the downward mobility we see in verses six through eight. And in a society, ancient world, where upward mobility is longed for, not always achievable, and in a contemporary society where people talk about upward mobility all the time, right? Or about um, getting on the partner track, or what about getting on the servant track? What does Paul call us to? Something so countercultural, and I think it's still countercultural to pursue humility. Even though the church 
and the New Testament honors it as a key Christian virtue, it's so hard to live out. Um, I appreciate what Brennan Manning says in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. He says that more often than not, the Christian community resembles a Wall Street exchange of works wherein the elite are honored and the ordinary ignored. Now that may not typify your fellowship, so I'm not trying to point figures here, but generally speaking, I know that when I walk into a Christian context, I might need to pay attention to certain people and other people don't need as much attention. There there are those kinds of divisions that we have and as people we're trained to look for them, as Christians, we should be trained to look for the least of these and figure out what it means to serve them. That's what Jesus calls us to. So I'm gonna read the rest of the Christ poem or Christ hymn because his death on the cross is then followed by an amazing move that God makes. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. We sang about that this morning. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus' downward mobility is then taken by God and he is put in that highest place. So now Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that becomes a motif through the rest of the letter where Paul will use the language of Lord, will talk about, I hope in the Lord to come to you. So he keeps on using this language to affirm um, around, and again, in Philippi, in the, the context of worship, there were lords all over the place. Gods were called lords. Caesar was called Lord. Christians only have one Lord. And when I forget that, I run into trouble. I have only one Lord, and that is Jesus the Messiah who died for me, who is my Savior, and who will return in glory, as Paul will say in chapter 3. So at the the rest of chapter two, go through very quickly, Paul begins with this great example of Jesus and then he will follow up and he will talk about other people that are exemplars in a sense. Because anyone who follows a pattern of Jesus in a part of their life becomes an example for the gospel. So Timothy, two, 19 through 24, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out to their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, but Timothy, Ah, he looks out for the interests of others. Back to chapter 2, verse 4. And then Epaphroditus, who we hear at the very end of 25 through 30, welcome him in the Lord with great joy. He's coming back. He's been sick. They were worried about him. um, And Paul was worried that they would be worried. And Epaphroditus was worried that they'd be worried. And there's this lovely kind of, I call it relational angst or relational anxiety that floats around this passage. At the end of it all, Paul affirms that they should welcome him with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. So as he highlights these two examples, he also, as I mentioned, starts to kind of talk about this warm concern and deep care and kind of relational, um, I call it my commentary, relational anxiety. The thing we feel when the people we are most concerned about are in trouble. in November, my, my father passed away from COVID, and we had a month of relational, deep relational anxiety that has continued. My mom uh, also con- contracted it from him, but 
got over it very quickly. My sister took about a week and a half. My other sister was, uh, and myself were not affected. In the midst of all of that, I was so very struck, and I was writing the commentary on this. And I was so very struck by how deeply, um, how, how Paul cared so deeply about these believers, how they cared so deeply about him, how Epaphroditus, caught in the middle, cared about both sides of that equation. There was this concern because he was ill. And I just resonated with that. I thought Paul is speaking to that deep relational concern. And in the commentary I'm writing, uh, there's always a little section at the end of each of the major sections, 10 sections, where I write on theology. And I have to tell you, 40 years ago when I was reading this commentary and studying Philippians, I thought that 19 through 30 of chapter two were probably the least theological verses. They're all, you know, Timothy's coming to you, I'll send him later, he's gonna stay with me for a while. Epaphroditus, I'm sending him back, and he was sick, but now he's not. And You know, I just felt like it was kind of the news of the letter. Um, but Paul tucks it into chapter two, I think, because number one, you get these examples of faith and of looking like Christ in some way, but also, because there's this warmth that exudes from it, this sense of we care and are concerned when people in our lives are hurting or sick or having troubles. And in four, chapter, chapter four, verse six, Paul will say, cast all your, or I mean, um, be anxious about nothing but everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. God is the person we go to. God is the one we go to when all is anxious when all is um, up in the air, like last for us, last November, December, January. God was our only place to go. And my father didn't make it through. He didn't, he wasn't healed as Epaphroditus was. He didn't get well. I do know my dad is with Jesus. It's where he wants to be. Um, but this section of text became so powerful to me. There was something deeply theological because God met me there. And it was God who, God who is the one that we go to when we have no more power and we're so aware that we had no power in this situation. And it's a good place to be in a sense to know that we are not in control, we never were. Um, so for me, it's become a favorite part of Philippians for me. So we're gonna run through chapters three and four. And just note that Paul gives his own example in chapter three. So he's given Christ, he's given Timothy, Epaphrodites. He spends a whole chapter um, showing how he, uh, as he moved from his own Jewish heritage and finding um, great, um, great privilege there, um, great, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, but he turns and now in, in the face of Christ having arrived, Christ is everything. So in chapter three, verse eight, he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Christ becomes his focus. Now that the Messiah has arrived, everything has changed and resurrection is on the horizon, he says, and I want to attain the resurrection from the dead, verse 11, verse 2021. 20, we eagerly await a savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we'll be, they'll be like his glorious body. Paul says, follow my example in looking ahead, 
pressing on, looking forward, and having what's called an eschatological mindset, a looking ahead kind of mindset that says Christ has already done the work that will bring us to final day resurrection. And in the middle of that chapter, uh, he says, 3.15, all of um, 17, join together in following my example. He's not afraid to say, follow my example, but he's already shown how Christ is the ultimate example. Tim and I have a new grandson. He's about 19 months old. His name is Harrison. Cutest baby ever. And wow, does he follow the models around him. Not just the good models. He, he copies everything anybody does. So I was really struck in chapter three how Paul, he says, you follow my example, and you kind of think, well, that seems kind of prideful. Why your example? We, people follow people all the time, whether they're good examples or not, and Paul will go on to talk about the bad examples in 19 and 20, 18 and 19, of some he, they shouldn't follow. It's just a matter of course. You see, I see it in Harrison. He follows everything we do, whether it's singing or talking, language development is huge right now, um, dancing, or, you know, he likes music, so he sings and dances. And, but he's, he, he just learns it all from the people around him. And Paul knew that was the case. In the ancient world, imitation was a really important part of education. Um, and it just is the case that we follow people. So pay attention to who you follow, Paul says. Make sure that their mindset is on Christ. Their mindset has been re- reoriented to what Christ is doing and who Christ is. That's as far as I got through. I did pretty well, actually, got through chapter three, kind of. I want to just say a couple of words about maybe some ways to think about applying Philippians, even from this sort of bird's-eye view. First, um, I think the relational warmth and tone of this letter is inspiring for Christian communities, for churches, for my church, for your church, to be able to say that kind of warmth, the glue of Christ that holds us together And by the way, I just want to read chapter 3, verse 12, because it's one of my favorite verses about that sort of holding that Christ does. Paul says, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He doesn't even tell us what he reaches for other than the Christ who holds him. I I I reach out to grab hold of that for which Christ has already taken hold of me. I am in the arms, in the embrace of Christ. We all are, and it's what glues us together. So how can our communities live into that? It's already a reality. We're stuck together in a good way. So how do we live into that warmth and that relationship? I'm also struck by the humility and that singular loyalty that Paul calls believers to. And then that forward focused mindset. Paul, he looked ahead, he hadn't reached it yet, resurrection was still to come, but he, he just longed for it and he stretched toward it. He was no Christian couch potato. He was just reaching out to grab it. And one of my favorite passages, I'm gonna leave you with this, Philippians 4. So we didn't get there, so you can say, yes, yeah, she got to Philippians 4 at the very, very last moment. Um, it's a part about anxiety and it's the part about praying, and it's, a, and it's the part about peace. And this theme of peace has been so powerful for me in the writing of this commentary and in these last days. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. 
and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, that mind-boggling peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then at the end of verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Jesus, our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior, we reach out our hands for that for which you have already taken hold of us. And in these days, as we live distinctively in the world, as we seek to be humble servants of one another and of the people around us, wherever we go, I pray you would Give us your peace. Show us that you are the God of peace. Amen.